The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. While you're turning, I want to take a moment here before we begin just to give you a quick update on Frank. Uh, He and I were talking this past week and thought it'd be good to let you guys know what's going on in his life right now with the cancer. Uh, Monday was when he started chemo. It was kind of a surprise. There was some confusion, I think, on the doctor's part about when things were going to get going. Uh, but he began Monday, uh, I think his first, this first week was every day for three hours a day, four hours a day, so it was a lot, um, so he's tired and not feeling good, as you would expect, next week I think he just has one day, and then uh, it's the third week, does he have any? One day, yeah, so it's a full week, and then one day, and then one day, and then it repeats again, that's a four, that cycle goes four times, so uh, in the early stages here, he's doing well. Uh, his medicine for uh, the anti-nausea has been helping him, um, so that's good. That's a po- positive. He's just really tired and weak. So just keep praying for him, praying for the skirties. Uh, that's what they need most right now, so if you would uh, keep that in mind, we wanted you to have an update on Frank. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer this morning, and we'll begin our time in his word. Father, we are gathered again now to understand your word. This is for us the central point of why we gather together. We, we, we worship you best by understanding what it is you want us to, to do in life, how you want us to live, how you want us to understand you. And so your word is everything to us. We've sung it, we've prayed around it, and now we're going to dig into it to try to understand you. And so I pray this morning that your spirit will be active in, in each and every heart in this room. Father, if there are people in here today who do not know you as Savior, I pray that even through what we're doing here and and trying to prepare our hearts to understand the flood story, that you would take these truths that we're going to look at this morning and convict them of the reality of the gospel. For everyone in here, though, Lord, all those who are believers, no matter what, I pray that you will open our eyes to see your word as it is. There is nothing more amazing than your truth. And when we just open it up and we just let it speak for itself, it can change us. And so today, Father, we come and we ask for that. Help us to, to be prepared for your word. Help us as we go through all these issues that we've been working for now for two previous weeks. This will be our third. Help us to, to learn all we can so that we can become more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Again, we're picking up this morning where we left off last time. Uh, This is part three of a three-part sermon. If you weren't here for parts one and two, you very much need to go back and listen to them because some of the things I say today may not make sense to you uh, since they're being built off of uh, the previous weeks. We are preparing ourselves, kind of going through an introduction of sorts, so that we can study what is commonly known as the story of Noah's flood or the story of Noah's ark. It's one of the best known stories in the scriptures, no doubt. And I have been arguing for weeks now that it's also one of the least understood 
stories in the scriptures as well. We have this idea of what it's about, but most of us have never really taken the time to go through this. And because there are so many issues surrounding this story, I thought it would be helpful for us as a body, as a family, to take three weeks to work through eight different issues surrounding the story. And so far, how many have we covered in our two previous weeks? Five, okay? We did two the first week. We did three uh, last week. And I've arranged these, remember, subjectively from the least important to the most important. And those words are very much in quotes. It's just my way as a teacher of trying to think through what will be the most helpful things for you to understand so that you really get the message that that Moses is trying to communicate to us here in this story. I don't know if I've done that well or if I've done a good job of that at all, but I have certainly tried. Since today is week three, guess what we're in now? We're in the most important issues, all right? So today is the, the big day. You really needed to be here for this, and thankfully you are. Let's quickly review the first five, just so that you can remember where we've been up to this point. The first issue we looked at was the triteness with which we often handle the flood story. Because, again, we're so familiar with it, we, we just don't even think about what the story is anymore. We decorate our baby rooms in it, and we, we put it on our iPads and all this other crazy stuff, never stopping to, to give real thought to the fact that this story is a story of God's judgment on sin. It's a horrific story in many senses, and it's one that, if we don't understand well, could lead us to a wrong view of God, something we need to, to be aware of. We, we need to have a firm understanding of the story if we're really going to get what it's all about. The second issue we looked at was some of the misinformation that's often associated with this story. Um, how many of you remember, if anyone remembers this, how many of you remember the Hanna-Barbera version of the story of Noah's Flood? cartoon. It was probably made back in like the early 70s. Has anyone seen that cartoon? Some of you have. You just didn't know it was Hanna-Barbera, okay? I think that, unfortunately, for many of us, our understanding of the flood is probably built more off of Hanna-Barbera than it is off the Holy Bible. Ah, that was good, wasn't it? Um, We just have just adopted information about the flood story from all these various sources, whether it's parents who taught us this, or pastors who taught us this, or books we read, or movies we watched, or whatever it is, and we don't actually know what the real story says, which I tried to point out to you by stumping you all on a quiz. I actually even got a, I won't say who sent it to me, I got a text this week, someone had been out, it had been raining, and they took a picture of a rainbow, and they texted it to me and said, I thought of the flood story and I also thought about your quiz and the possibility that I might be not understanding this correctly. So there you go. I know it had an effect. We want to make sure that we understand the story well. So we're going to dig into the text as we work through to make sure that we've got the story right. Third issue had to do with how we understand all the other flood stories that are out there. Because if you study this issue out for yourself, you will run into a lot of information about this about all the other flood stories in ancient civilizations, modern civilizations. How are they connected? What do we do with them? How do we understand them? I think they're helpful for us. I think that, that I'm not surprised by seeing them out there because I expect my understanding of the scriptures and my understanding of the world to, to be reflected in everything I see everywhere around me. At the same time, though, we want to be careful that we don't place our faith in the wrong things. Our faith isn't placed in any proof that we see anywhere in this world for anything. Our faith ultimately is placed in the scriptures. It is our ultimate authority. Number four, we looked at the various flood theories that are out there. 
And again, if you've studied this topic, you know what I'm referring to here. Everyone has a theory about everything, everything around the flood. And so a lot of times when we get together to talk about the flood, particularly in in church situations like this, people want to hear all the details about their particular theory. They want me to go into, you know, a long, long list of, well, here's why this is this. this." That's what you want. Most people want, I should say. I won't accuse you of that. But I would just simply point out to you that that is not Moses' point in writing. That's not what he's writing for. We'll talk about that in just a second here. He's not wanting us to have a perfectly figured out theory of everything. He's trying to communicate something very, very different than how most of us read this story. And so if we're going to approach the story rightly, we need to have the right kinds of assumptions, presuppositions, commitments that we can used to interpret the story, and that led me to issue number five, was what are our biblical commitments? How do we approach this story? And I gave you four commitments that I think every believer should have. I'll just put them back up here on the screen behind me. Number one, I think all of us have to be assured in our own hearts and minds that the Scriptures are our ultimate authority. This is our starting point. That no matter what else we see in life or run into in life, the scriptures are the authority for us. Number two, that they are 100% true and reliable. I mean, do you really believe that? That's a major question because if you don't really believe that, then you and I are going to be approaching this story differently. And we'll talk again more about that later today. Number three, I said that the purpose of the story is, oh, I moved it. Purpose of the story is not to answer all of our questions nor to fill in all the details that we would like, what I was talking about earlier, but the real purpose of the story is to teach us something about God, about his character and his plan. And if you recall, if you were here last week, I said to you that it's this fourth commitment here that is the turning point in this introductory series. This is where we turn an important corner in our understanding of the flood story, that the story is really there to teach us something about God, not about Noah, not about the flood, not about all this other stuff. It's there to teach us something about God. I told you that the story is not just history, that it's what? Does anyone remember? It's theological history. And the difference between history and theological history is that history is simply a story about something that happened in the past. Theological history is a story about something that happened in the past that's designed to teach you about God. That's the difference in what history and theological history is. This is a theological history. It's here to help us understand who God is and what he's doing in this world. Moses isn't writing this to intrigue us, to entertain us, to fill in all the details. He wants us simply to know God better. And so today... My goal is to drive this last point that we looked at last week home in force. My goal in these three final issues is to show you from the scriptures why I think that this story is ultimately about who God is and what he's doing in this world. My guess is, and I could be correct, incorrect in this, I could be correct as well. My guess is, is that many of us in this room, myself included, have read this story incorrectly for most of our lives. Now you let that sink in for a moment. I'm not saying that the story is incorrect. I said that most of us in this room have read this story incorrectly for most of our lives. We've looked for all the wrong things. And so I hope that today 
I will be able to show you why and how we should see this story differently than we ever have before. Let's begin. Issue number six is the structure of Toledot 3. For those of you who are not uh, regulars for Cornerstone, you don't know what the word Toledot means, Hebrew, uh, Genesis is divided into a prologue and ten stories. And each story begins with this little Hebrew word, Toledot. It means these are the generations of, or this is the account of, or this is the story of, something like that. And so we can follow each story as it unfolds in, in Moses' plan here throughout the book. Right now we're in the third story, the third Toledot. And I'd have to say that generally speaking, and this applies not just here but throughout everything we've seen, I have really been fascinated by not just what Moses has to say, but how he goes about saying it. Moses is a master communicator. He really is. This, this book is a masterpiece of ancient literature to see how he forms his message and his arguments so that we understand what it is that he's trying to get across. And here in this third story of Genesis, Toledo 3, we have one story that's broken up into three scenes. We've seen that before, haven't we? Okay, three scenes here in the story. Scene number one is what I'm calling flood proper. Okay? This starts in chapter 6, verse 9. It's going to go all the way through the end of chapter 8. So two and a half chapters are going to be focused on the flood. Scene two covers the covenant. That starts it's the first half of chapter 9. God's going to make a covenant with, with Noah and really with all humanity. And so that's given its own place. And then scene number 3 covers the blessings and cursings that Noah gives around his drunkenness and around all the actions of his three sons. That takes up the second half of chapter 9. So you see the three scenes here. Obviously the first one is really big. The final two are really small. But together they form one story. But having said that, How does understanding the structure help us see that the message is ultimately about God? Well, this is kind of the macro structure. To get my point, I want to look at the micro structure. And I want to introduce you to a word that some of you will be familiar with, but most of you will not be. It's a technical term. It's used to describe a form of writing that was very common in the ancient world. It's called a chiasm. Ever heard of a chiasm before? Most people haven't. It comes from the Greek letter chi. Does anyone know what the Greek letter chi looks like? Okay, there you go. It's a big X, the Greek letter chi. And so in chiasm, what you have is when an author arranges his story or his argument or whatever he's going to do in a series of corresponding ideas in reverse order. Okay, was that really clear? I didn't think so. Let me give you an example so that you can understand what a chiasm is. This is very important. Here's a silly story for you. Billy walked into the kitchen. Billy was hungry. Billy ate watermelon. Billy was full. Billy left the kitchen. Okay, so you see the story here. I'll move out of the way just for a moment so you can get a good understanding of it. Notice that I did two things. I added a letter in front of each sentence just to make this a little bit clearer, I hope. And I followed the pattern of the X or the chi. Everybody see that? Notice that the first statement corresponds to the last statement. Billy walked into the kitchen. Billy left the kitchen. Similar ideas, but here in this case in reverse. The B corresponds to the B. Billy was hungry. Billy was full. Similar ideas in reverse order. 
The only idea in this statement, this little story I made, that doesn't have a corresponding idea is the middle one, right? It's the C. Billy ate watermelon. That means that in my story, the focus of what I want you to understand is that Billy ate watermelon. Okay? Everything that happens before that is to get you to this moment, and everything that happens afterwards is because of this moment. Okay? That's how a chiasm works. The only idea that doesn't have a corresponding idea is the main point. Is that clear as mud? Let's do a second one just to make sure that you, that you really get it here. And I made this one a little bigger so that you can see how this works over a larger story. Billy walked everywhere. Billy was tired of walking. Billy bought a car. Billy's car was nice. Billy got in an accident. Billy's car was totaled. Billy couldn't afford a new car. Billy was forced to walk again. Billy walked everywhere. Okay? Got it? A corresponds to A. This time I made them the same, which worked in this particular story. B corresponds to B, C to C, D to D. The only idea that doesn't have a corresponding idea is what? E, that he got in an accident. That's what I'm trying to get you to understand in this story. So I've used the chiasm to get you to that point so that you can understand the story. Well, here's why I'm showing you this. It's because Moses uses a chiasm in his first scene, the scene of the flood story, to help you understand the point that he wants you to get. And so I want you to see what that is. And unfortunately, because this one's so much bigger, I have to move the X over just to make room for it. But after he introduces the story, introduces Noah, the first thing he does is that he says that the Lord resolves to destroy humankind with a flood. And he tells you why he's going to destroy humankind. It's because of sin. He tells you how he's going to do it. It's going to be with a flood. He's going to wipe them all out. So once he says that, uh, Noah builds an ark. God gives him the plans. He does it. Next, the Lord commands the remnant, Noah, and the animals to enter the ark. And, of course, they do so because they want to have escaped the flood. Next, the flood begins. After that, the flood prevails on the earth for 150 days. Moses is very specific about this amount of time. Chapter 7, verse 24. 150 days, and the mountains are all covered. Again, he's very specific about this. But then, something happens. In chapter 8, verse 1, the Lord remembers Noah. And as soon as the Lord remembers Noah, the very first thing that happens is that the flood begins to recede for 150 days. Very specific on the times. And the mountains become visible again. Next, the earth dries out. After the earth is ready, the Lord commands them all to leave the ark. And once out, Noah builds an altar. And then the scene ends with God doing what? Promising to never destroy humankind with a flood ever again. Everybody see that? Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at that, I'm kind of like amazed by how Moses has put this together in such a very clear way to help us see what's his main point. And what is his main point? It's this center comment that the Lord remembered Noah. He doesn't draw our attention so much to Noah or to the ark or to the flood. He draws our attention to God's faithfulness. To the fact that God doesn't leave these people in this situation. That in the midst of a judgment on sin unlike anything ever seen, 
We see God being gracious, merciful, and loving to this group of people so that he can save humanity from his wrath and his judgment. See, I didn't just simply say that the story is about God because it's a good thing to say because I'm a pastor. I said it because this is Moses' point. He's wanting to draw our attention to who God is, and so he emphasizes it with the way he structures his story, and we'll see that throughout this entire story from from chapter 6, verse 9, all the way through the end of chapter 9. We're going to see him constantly bringing our attention back to who God is and what he's doing in this world. We need to understand the structure, and we will. Number seven is the connection to the creation story. The connection to the creation story. You see, the structure tells us what his main point is. His main point is to teach you something about God, his character, and his plan. But how he goes about laying out this larger story is actually very similar to something we've seen before. The the story basically progresses in four themes, okay? I'm, I'm using the word theme here because, well, you'll understand why as we get going. The story begins with the theme of chaos. And this chaos is not just random, is it? It's chaos that's brought about by man's sinfulness. And it's not just any chaos that he begins with. What kind of chaos is it? It's the chaos of a flood. Now, can you think of any other time in in Genesis up to this point where the world has been in chaos by water? Anything coming to mind? Yeah. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. Remember how we started? That in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth is without form and void and darkness is over the face of the what? The deep. The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the what? The waters. And when we went through that section, again, if you weren't here, it would be helpful to go back and listen to it. When we went over that section, I explained how the, the way he's wording that there in verses 1 and 2 is helping us as readers understand that this world was a lifeless, uninhabitable place. It's a place of death. It's it's a place where no life is possible. And the creation story is God taking this chaotic world and bringing order to it in a place where life cannot simply flourish but can abound in it. Remember, Remember all of that? And so just like the creation story begins in chaos, here we see a world in chaos as well as God returns it to its original state. Guess what comes next? Recreation. See, in the original story of creation, there's chaos, water. Now God comes and he begins to move over it and he begins to speak and things begin to happen and he creates a world out of that chaos. Well, in this story... There's chaos again, and God is going to recreate the world through the remnant that he saved, through Noah, his family, and all of the animals. And there are so many things I could show you here, and I will as we get going, that are really amazing in terms of similarities between what Moses tells us about Noah in this situation and what we see back in in the creation story. I mean, just here, I'll give you a sampling, a sampling. Think about the similarities between Noah and Adam. Just just think about these two guys for a moment. Both of them have a special relationship with God, right? God speaks to them. He's doing things with them, interacting with them. Both of them are given special instructions in relation to the animals. Adam has to name them. Noah has to save them. Both of them have three named sons, one of whom becomes a disappointment. 
For Adam, it, of course, is Cain. For Noah, it is Ham. There are so many things that are similar between just the men Noah and the men Adam that I don't think there's any possible way that, that it's coincidental. I think Moses is trying to draw our attention to these connections so that we can understand the larger point. But I also want to point out some parallels between how God worked in creation and how he works in this story. Remember those seven ways we looked at how God worked in creation when we were going through the creation story? As we work through the the flood story, we're going to see God working in all the same ways. And so we saw in creation that God works through process and progress. Remember, why does it take him seven days to, to create the world? Why? It doesn't make any sense. He can do it like this. Why did it take seven days? If you think the question is, well, how could it have only taken seven days? You don't understand God then. <laughs> he could have done it like that, but he didn't. And one of the things we saw was that God works through process and, and progress. Well, why doesn't God just kill everyone like that? Why send a flood and make it last a year and go through all these other things? I think we're seeing God work in the same ways we saw him work in creation. Uh, what, what about number three there? God working directly and indirectly. In creation, sometimes God spoke things into existence. Let there be light. Poof, there's light. Other times he works indirectly. He speaks to the ground. Bring forth the plants and, and the, the living, the green things. And the ground complies. Okay, here it is. And you see this the same way here. If I'm Noah and God comes to me and says, hey, build an ark, I think my first question back would be, could you do it for me? (laughs) You're God. Poof, ark. There it is. And yet God chooses not to work this way. He lets Noah be involved in this process, I think, again, because that's the way God works. I, I could keep going through these different items, and again, we will, All I simply want you to understand is that as we work through this, we're going to see connections to the creation story here in Noah's account. The next theme we see built into the story is that of blessing. Blessing. Beginning in chapter 9, turn there now since you're in chapter 9. Beginning in chapter 9, God speaks to Noah, and I want you to pay careful attention to what he says. Look at verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the seas. And to your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Now, th- does that sound familiar to anything we've read up to this point? Does it at all sound like Genesis 1, 28 and 29, where God said, or Moses writes, and God blessed them, and God said to them, to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Does that look similar at all? In both cases, as God is blessing them, he gives them commands, be fruitful, multiply, responsibilities, you are to subdue, fill the earth. He gives them provision, here's what you can eat. In first case, just plants, in the next case, plants and animals. 
This isn't coincidental. He's following the same pattern we saw happen in the creation story as God took the world from chaos, created it, made man, and blessed him in it. Nor is this final phase coincidental, which is failure. Because how does Noah's story end? It doesn't end in a way that makes any sense, at least not to me, if I don't read it correctly. Because Noah, this great guy, righteous man, the one who walked with God, the only one whom God saved, ends naked and drunk in his tent. (laughs) If, If Moses is trying to set Noah up as the focus of the story, then this last detail doesn't fit. If Noah is this character that we're supposed to emulate, then I don't understand why he's showing us this final scene. But of course, I would say he's not giving us Noah as the focus of the story, nor is he setting him up as the example on the pedestal that we are all to emulate. I think he's following the pattern that we've seen already. Because after God had brought the world out of chaos, created it, made man and blessed him, what happened next? Man failed. And again, the similarities between Adam and Noah are amazing. Adam's failure comes through eating. Noah's failure comes through drinking. Both of their failures are connected to nakedness. Both of their failures lead to a curse on others. Again, in my mind, the similarities here from start to finish are too striking to be coincidental. And the reality is is that we're going to see this pattern repeated again and again and again in Scripture. What story comes next? In Genesis, after the flood. Next big story. Tower of Babel. So here's man getting ready to do something God doesn't want him to do. And what does God do? He brings chaos. Confuses their languages. They spread out all over. But God has always had a people. And so he begins again with one man, Abraham, whom he blesses and makes covenants with and who fails. You're going to see it again and again and again in Scripture until the very end of time when someone finally comes along who doesn't end to the, puts away with the failure, does away with the failure. The pattern will continue until Christ comes again. He's the only one who can fix it. The only one who can stop it. The only hope we have. In that sense, then, I think we can change number seven to read like this. It's really the connection to the rest of the scriptures. It's not just the creation story. It's the biblical story that we're connecting to, that we see thrown together here in such a wonderful way in this story. And that leads me then to issue number eight, which is the New Testament understanding of the flood story. We want to be like Jesus, we say. We, we want to, to live like him, think like him. Well, if that's the case, wouldn't it behoove us to, to try to understand the Scriptures like Him? Wouldn't it be wise for us to stop and go, okay, Jesus, how do you see this story? Okay, New Testament authors, those of you who were His apostles, who are the ones giving us His teaching, how do you understand this story? Because however they understand it is how I want to understand it. And when I looked at that, when I've studied this out, I think we can see four things in the New Testament about the story. Number one, we see the reality of the story. Because as you look at the New Testament, it's clear they accept it as being true. There really was a Noah. There really was an ark. There really was a flood. Everyone really died. 
Jesus is as a descendant of Noah through Shem. I mean, they just see it being true as written. They don't try to re-explain it, change it, nothing. They take it as it is, and I think we should as well. Number two, they see it as being about the character of God. Big surprise, right? Because that's what Moses is trying to tell us. And I love, just as an example, I love how Peter uses the flood story in 2 Peter chapter 2. Just look at this. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day or day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over these lawless deeds that he saw and heard. If all these things are true, and they are, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Do you see what he did? He applied the flood story, as well as several others, as doing something to teach us about the character of God. God knows how to save, and God knows how to punish. God knows how to rescue us from trials, and God knows how to discipline. You can trust him. You can trust him to take care of both. To, to rescue you out of whatever's going on in your life right now. You think you've got it bad. You think something horrible is happening. You think that it can never get any worse. <laughs> you haven't been through a flood. God can take care of you. And you think you can get away with sin forever. A day is coming where judgment will be given out. You need to understand something about God's character, Peter says. And the flood is the way he, he understands that. Number three, we see the importance of faith in this story, what Jordan referenced earlier. And I've shown this verse twice before. I'll show it again here. It's Hebrews eleven seven. This is what the writer of Hebrew does with Noah. He draws our attention to Noah's faith. His faith. This, this is why he's righteous. Because he believed that God wasn't who what he said he was, he acted. He built the ark. Because of his faith in God's promise to bring this flood, he responded by doing what God had said, and through his faith he becomes an heir of righteousness. And in that sense, he is an example to us. And then number four, they see it as a certainty of coming judgment. Certainty of coming judgment. And this is how Jesus uses this story to remind us that judgment is coming. In Matthew chapter 24, which we normally call the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is talking about the, the end of time, when he'll come again, when the world is going to end. And here's what he says. He says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when, the, when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour 
you do not expect. Jesus looks at the flood and He just says, hey, remember, the people who died in the flood, they woke up that morning and they got their cup of coffee and they listened to CNN and they got in their car and they went to work and they went to school and they went to the store and everything was like normal and the next thing you know, whoom! Judgment came. They were unaware. Judgment's coming again. That's Jesus' point. Remember this. That just like in the days of Noah, they weren't expecting it. It will be the same way in the end when Jesus comes. You need to understand that judgment is imminent, but salvation is possible, right? Because just like with, just like with Noah, God has made a way. And just like with Noah, because it's God's way, God gets to determine the means and the timetable. You come to him on his terms, or you don't come at all. And that's why in the end, I would say that this story keeps bringing us back to the gospel. Because no matter how I look at it, in any of these three ways that we've looked at this morning, it draws me back to that. As a believer, I see that the center of my life is the gospel. That God has arranged everything that's happened in my past to bring me to an understanding of Christ's death on the cross for me and everything that's happened afterwards is because of it. I see it in the sense that even though my life was filled with the chaos of sin, God saved me from judgment through the death of His Son, and now I have every blessing of grace despite my constant and continued failure. And I see it in the sense that now that I know the character of God, that He's all-powerful and holy, yet He's merciful. And He's not willing that we perish, but that we come to Him on His terms, placing our faith in His Son. Don't tell me that the God of the Old Testament is a different God than the God of the New Testament. It's the same God. Responding in all the same ways. Doing all the same things that we would expect because He never changes. And so no matter how we look at it, we keep coming back to the Gospel. And that's exactly what we want to do. Because as we've been saying all along, ultimately the Scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament... It's all about Jesus and God's plan to save the world, save us through Him. And so, I hope you're ready. I hope you're ready to embark on this journey through the story. We'll start next week, actually going into the text. I hope that you're ready to push out your wrong understandings and focus in on what Moses is trying to do. But more than anything else, I hope you're ready to see Jesus and the gospel everywhere we turn in this story.